The first part of my climbing career was really about proving what I was capable of. And it wasn't until much, much later and a lot of, you know, life changes that I, I think, had enough wisdom to start to pay attention to what the mountains were teaching me. And now my climbing is much more about that. In the last 14 years, Lisa Thompson has climbed 14 mountains. Some of them have been closer to her home in Seattle, Washington, like Mount Rainier and Mount Baker. Others stand scattered around the globe. Lisa has reached the seven highest summits on each continent, scaled many mountains in the Himalayas, and in 2018, she became the second American woman to climb the treacherous K2 in Pakistan. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living, an REI Co-op Studios production. Lisa Thompson has completed some of the tallest, toughest climbs in the world, and every aspect of her life has been influenced by the mountains. In the midst of her incredible mountaineering career, Lisa also survived breast cancer. The experience dramatically shifted her motivation for climbing. Years later, she founded an athletic coaching company, and recently, Lisa published her first book titled Finding Elevation. Her journey as a mountaineer wasn't a straightforward one, though. In fact, 15 years ago, climbing wasn't even on her radar. Lisa Thompson, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you on. I love talking to badass women. It takes a certain person to become a mountaineer, and it's not something that I desire to do. Um but I love talking to female mountaineers. I don't know why, I just, I find them very badass. So I wanna start with why mountains? Like <laughs> why, why mountains? Why did mountaineering, why yeah. did you choose that? I think you're right when you say it takes a certain kind of person to be a mountaineer. I think that's especially true for women because it's not expected. And though there are more women in the mountains than there used to be, it's still, we're still a minority. And I, And for me, I grew up, with this need to prove myself. And when I had my, got my first corporate job, I was the only, I studied engineering and I was the only female at my level. And I had recently moved to Seattle, which is where I live today. And climbing here is very much a part of the culture. Like it's, you know, a frequent weekend activity. It's just a part of, I think, how people recreate in the Seattle area. And so my peers at this new job, all men would go climbing on the weekends. And I had no interest in climbing a mountain. I grew up in Illinois. <laughs> there are zero mountains. At that point in my life, I'm embarrassed to say I probably didn't even know where Mount Everest was. I, it was not just it, anything that interests me. But what I desperately wanted as the only female in my level at this new job was to feel like I belonged. I wanted to be a part of this group. And I would see these guys, not bad men at all, but they would come back to the office on Monday and they have, have these heroic stories about like fording icy rivers and you know navigating through crevasses. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted them to see me as capable. And I thought this was a way for me to do it. But instead of doing the logical thing, which would be like, hey, climbing, that sounds like fun. Can I join you? And I'm sure they would have said yes. I got pissed off about it. And I just decided I would go climb my own mountains. Again, no idea what that meant, 
what it would entail or where it would ultimately lead me. The first time you climbed a mountain, what did it feel like? Like, take us there. I've, I've no, yeah, like, I can't grasp what it feels like to climb a mountain. So the first mountain, big mountain I climbed was Mount Rainier, which is the highest point in Washington. So it's 14,410 feet. Um, I was still, still clueless about what I was doing. So I signed up with a local guide company. I <laughs> bought, I made the, all the worst mistakes, like bought the heaviest backpack. I like wore the wrong boots, lost about eight toenails, like just all the things that you, I guess, have to go through in order to learn. And I didn't summit. The whole team turned around at about 12,000 feet due to weather. But I remember, first, I remember it being excruciatingly hard. And then I remember finding some place in my soul or my mind or somewhere that told me that I could keep going, that I had whatever it took to keep pushing forward. And I remember descending. I remember being relieved after for not having to attempt the summit that year. But I also knew I would come back. Like there's just something got into my psyche that made me want more of it. And I went back the next year and summited. And there was a point on that climb that second year where the guide looked at me and just said, you're going to the top. And that was one of, I think, the first times I really felt recognized and capable. Summoning Mount Rainier in 2009 put Lisa's life in motion, and her new love of mountaineering was in the driver's seat. With that first mountain under her belt, Lisa realized that she could push her climbing even further. She had read about the seven summits, and she started planning expeditions. Within a year, Lisa was traveling the world, crossing peaks off her list. What order did you do the seven summits in, and, and what was the time frame? So I started, let's see if we can get through this. I climbed Rainier, I summited Rainier um, in 2009. And then I knew, like I said, there was just something that got into me that I wanted to do more of this. And I didn't know what to climb. And so I had read a book about climbing the seven summits. And I was like, well, I'll just climb one of those. <laughs> so I picked the highest point in Europe, which is called Mount Elbrus. It's in Russia. And I climbed that next and felt great. Like it, it went well. It was my first sort of taste of being on an expedition. And then after that, I climbed Aconcagua, which is the highest point in South America. So now this is seriously high altitude. Aconcagua is almost 23,000 feet. And for true expedition living, so you're there for multiple weeks at base camp. You do rotations, which are what force your body to start to acclimate and build more red blood cells. And it was hard. It was not my favorite kind of climbing. Aconcagua is just a lot of rock and stone, and I prefer snow and glacier. And I learned a lot about what I'm capable of and the importance of, you know, being a positive member to a team and being able to have a little bit in reserve in case your teammates need you. And then after that, I climbed Denali. And <laughs> that, you know, I love Denali is still a very pure climb for a lot of reasons because there aren't any porters. There's no Sherpa helping carry your loads. 
I, at the time, weighed 115 pounds, maybe 110 pounds, and had to carry 80 pounds between a sled and a backpack. And I wanted, again, to see if I was capable of doing that. And after that, I went to Mount Vincent, which is in Antarctica. And that is just such a pristine, beautiful place. Like, it's hard to describe because, you know, we live in such a populated, developed world. And everywhere we look, what we see has been touched by man in some way. And so to be on this whole continent that was practically pristine and pure of that was just incredible. And then after that... I wanted to go to the Himalaya. I didn't yet want to climb Everest. I felt like it was sort of too commercial, got too much hype, but I wanted to climb in that mountain range because it's so iconic. And so I chose a mountain called Manaslu, which is an 8,000 meter peak. It's just over the 8,000 meter threshold, so 8,100 meters. And at the beginning of 2015, set my sights on that mountain, and that's when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so that, of course, as it should, changed everything for me. And that stubbornness that got me into climbing to begin with kicked into overload at that point. And I was so determined not to let cancer dictate my priorities and um, was, was fortunate that my cancer was caught very quickly and I had just an incredible medical team here in Seattle and I was still able to climb that mountain in the fall of 2015. Um, didn't summit due to avalanche concerns, but I learned so much on that climb about what's important. Having just had cancer, it just was very obvious to me how fragile life is and that it's up to each of us to determine the lives that we will lead. Can you tell me about getting the diagnosis? Yeah, I remember that day, you know, I, I was frustrated that I even had to have an exam in the morning. So I just went in for a routine mammogram. And I was, you know, I had a stack of work at the office waiting for me. And this, you know, it was just a nuisance that I had this doctor's appointment. And early in my career, I had actually worked in medical imaging. And so I know the flow for diagnostic tests. And I knew that when the radiologist came into the room after my test, that it was bad news. I knew that wasn't normal protocol. And I remember her sitting, it was you know cold February day. I remember her sitting next to me um, very closely and describing what she had seen in the mammogram and that there were, you know, these concerning calcifications in my left breast. And I knew immediately that I had cancer. Like with that, I still had to have a biopsy and loads of other tests, but there was just something that clicked for me in that moment. And I knew that I had cancer. Did you know there was something wrong before? Nothing. Zero. Wow. <laughs> and it just really, it really solidified for me that Life is just fragile and you really never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And that it's important to just live your best life every day. But you've had a clean bill of health since. Since then. So I had a, I had a bilateral mastectomy um, that year. And then I went to Montesquieu to climb. And then when I came home in the fall of 2015, I reprioritized my life. So at that point, I quit my corporate job. Um, I got a divorce. I sold nearly everything that I owned 
and I decided to climb Mount Everest. You're not afraid to cut the safety cord. That's really, really brave. I mean, a lot of people are scared just to quit their job. They're scared to leave marriages that aren't healthy. Most people are scared to climb Mount Everest, <laughs> Montesalu, any of those. And um, there's something in you that just leans towards fear and getting over it and using courage to do so. Where does that come from? I think it's the fear of looking back on my life and being like, why didn't I do that thing? Like, why did I let someone else's definition of what I'm capable of or fear prevent me from doing something that felt right to me? Lisa did her best to not let fear or her diagnosis stand in the way of completing the seven summits or climbing any mountain she set her sights on. Climbing Montesalu in Nepal in 2015 rebuilt Lisa's confidence after her cancer treatment. And in 2016, she successfully summited Mount Everest. But before she headed to Australia to complete the seven summits by climbing Mount Kosciuszko, Lisa decided to pursue another monumental challenge. She set her sights on summiting K2 in 2018. K2 is the second highest mountain on earth. It's a more difficult and more dangerous climb than Everest for a handful of reasons. First, the weather is even more extreme and unpredictable. Second, the approach is more technical. It's a rough trek over glacial ice, snow, and rock. Lastly, it's in a more remote area in a less touristy country. Unlike Everest, there's no emergency care nearby. For all of these reasons, fewer than 400 people have summited K2 compared with the 6,000 that have summited Mount Everest. Climbing mountains for you teaches you how to go yes. to your limits. Yes. Okay. And find those limits. And that was a very important like thing I had to learn. I remember at one point, someone looked at me very seriously. It was a former boss. And he was like, how do you know what your limit is? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Like, I need to figure this out. And so that was a lot of what K2 was about, figuring out what that limit is and being able to, being wise enough to get close to it, but not like cross that red line that's going to put me or my team in danger. And you're the second woman to ever climb to the second top American K- woman second American woman to summit woman. K2. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Do you have any funny moments that have happened? There. <laughs> There have been funny moments. I remember when I was climbing K2, so with another woman, um, we decided to begin our summit attempt a little bit early. So we left base camp ahead of the rest of the team, mostly because we just wanted to like, we were the only women on the team. We wanted to just sort of be together and not have the pressure of, you know, these guys. And I want to reiterate, I've learned a lot from men in the mountains, so not to to diminish that at all, but we just wanted to sort of climb on our own, at our own pace. No one's man-hating here. It's just you were like (laughs) one of the only women. I'm sure it was fun to climb with another woman. Totally. That's it. Um, And we get to advanced base camp and we have no utensils for eating. Like we had (laughs) forgotten to pack anything. (laughs) So we literally scrounge around First, we had this moment where we're like, we don't need to wear bras anymore. And we just took those off. (laughs) And then we just, we had to scrounge around in the rocks and we found these ridiculous bent, probably 30 year old tent stakes 
that we had to then for the rest of the climb eat our like rice and pasta and oatmeal with. And it was it was a hilarious moment at oh, 22,000 feet. I love that. Was there any moments on any of the mountains you've climbed where everything went wrong? Yeah. Um, actually, the next day on K2, um, there was a death above me. And, you know, I don't have to get too macabre about it, but like seeing that happen um, was very, I mean, it just made me question why I was there and why I was, why am I doing this? And knowing um, the, that person, having met him, he wasn't close to me, um, but realizing that we all came here with the same hopes and expectations and that the mountain doesn't care, especially that mountain doesn't care at all. And that that could be taken away from you and your family in a second, not because you made a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. Um, and it just made me like question, why am I here? Why am I doing this? So what was your why? Like, why do you keep doing it? <clears throat> yeah. So I laid in the tent for a long time that next day and just cried and thought about that question. And I just knew that I was capable of more and that demonstrating that would ripple out to other people. And it was that sort of broader, similar to just climbing in Nepal, like that knowing that that was going to have an impact more broadly pushed me to keep going. And I think you also, you know, climbing any mountain, you have to accept that it's dangerous. And before I went to Pakistan in particular, I had to come to terms with the fact that death is a possible outcome of climbing this mountain. And you have to accept that. Since climbing K2, Lisa decided she has no desire to climb something that dangerous ever again. In fact, she didn't climb anything over 20,000 feet for three years. After her K2 summit, her final climb of the seven summits took place in Australia on Mount Kosciuszko, a mountain that's just over 7,000 feet. While this final mountain may not have been as challenging as the others, Lisa experienced a feeling of true accomplishment at the summit. When we come back, Lisa talks about the lessons she's learned from the mountains, her coaching business, Alpine Athletics, and her recent all-woman's trip of Cholatsi in Nepal. Climbing big mountains is an incredibly risky activity. No one can control the weather patterns or the avalanche risk, and moving in such harsh conditions can be hard on the body. The only thing climbers can control is their own preparedness. Throughout her climbing career, Lisa Thompson has worked extensively with coaches to prepare for her expeditions. In 2018, after summoning K2, Lisa founded her own coaching company, Alpine Athletics. Tell me a little bit about your coaching business and why you started it and what you guys do. So my company is called Alpine Athletics and I started it. I actually wrote all of the details for the website at K2 Basecamp in 2018. <laughs> that was what I did on my downtime at Basecamp. 
And I, at that point in my climbing career, I realized that I was usually more prepared for a climb than other people. And that, that grew out of me often being the only woman or often being doubted and wanting to be as prepared as I could possibly be in every way for every mountain that I climbed. Or maybe just being an engineer. Or that too. <laughs> being a nerd. Yeah. So I had coached a few friends who like climbed Rainier and thought, I think I could do this. Like, I think I want this to be my side hustle. At the time, I still had a corporate job. Um, and what I learned was it is gratifying on another level for someone to come to me and say, I want to climb Mount Rainier and to take them from having, you know, maybe hiked a little, never worn a crampon to standing on the top of that mountain is hugely rewarding to me. And I also now, you know, this is my full-time job. I get to talk and think and research mountains all day long, which is like, <laughs> like a dream for me. That's awesome. Have you learned anything that you didn't expect being a coach? Yes. Yeah. So little side note, I had coached for a long time with some of the best mountain coaches there are still. And I, you know, really respect these men and the coach I was working with in preparation for K2 um, stopped working with me. He ended our professional relationship because he didn't believe that I should, that I was ready to climb K2. And that was a very debilitating time in my life. And Things happen for reasons. I firmly, firmly believe that. And that really helped to temper how I coach and to talk to the athletes that I'm fortunate to work with about why a particular mountain is important to them. And I do think I have a responsibility to say, like, I think you're reaching a little bit too far, but I think it's important to follow that statement up with, and here are the things that I can help you do to get there. And that seeing, especially I've coached one woman now, she'd never climbed anything. And now I'm coaching her to climb K2. And so to see her progression and her learning the skills and being more confident and knowing that I was a part of that is just hugely rewarding. One of the benefits I have is I've climbed almost all the mountains that they're aspiring to climb. And so I truly understand what it's like to be on that mountain and what that mountain requires of any athlete who attempts to climb it. And then I get to know the athlete themselves, what their training environment is like, why they want to climb the mountain, what their mental strength is like. And I think of myself as just building the bridge. Like I just create the path for them to get where they are to where they need to be to summit that mountain. In addition to working on projects that help other women achieve their dreams, Lisa continues to go after her own wild ideas. In fact, days before our interview, she returned from leading an all-women's expedition up Chilotzi, a 21,000-foot mountain in Nepal. The expedition included two American climbers, two Nepali climbers, and a support crew of 12 Nepali women. Scheduling this interview is a little tough because you were climbing in Nepal. Tell us about this trip. Yeah, the whole point of this climb was that me and another female climbing friend said, let's create an all-women's expedition. So all-women porters, all-women base camp crew, only women climbing. And it was 
I was worried. Like, I wasn't sure it was all going to come together. It was the first time I had played a role in in pulling an expedition together and organizing it and leading it. Wait, and only women porters? Are there a lot of women porters in Nepal? So, no. And we, and the story, we could have a whole nother podcast about. So I reached out. There are also only two female Sherpa that are experienced enough to guide in the Himalaya. And I had interacted with one of them, Pasang Lamu Sherpa. And I just sent her an Instagram message and was like, playing an all-women's expedition to Cholatsi, do you want to be our lead lead Sherpa? And she was like, yep. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And she was so passionate about helping other women in Nepal for that reason, that there are not a lot of women who work in the mountains. And as I learned their stories of losing children and losing husbands on Mount Everest and of you know never walking more than two days from their village before and being worried that they like wouldn't be accepted in our expedition. It was literally and probably forever will be the most meaningful climb that I've ever been on. There was a point, well, many points we would, like as we were walking to base camp, which was a seven day walk through the Kumbu Valley, we would pass other trekkers who would say, oh my God, there's a super fun group of all female porters up ahead of us. They're like singing and laughing. And we're like, that's our team. And so one of the the thing the unexpected for me unexpected takeaways as we as a team started to share and laugh and cry and just really form the sisterhood we all shared that at some point we were worried that we weren't capable that like they couldn't carry the loads that I was worried like the expedition wasn't going to come together and it was through us just being so devoted to supporting women that it all did. And I'm happy to say there were no tense moments. It was supportive and fun. And seeing, we also raised money for young girls' education in Nepal. So seeing the effect that that had and will have on women in that valley is immeasurable. So you've done a ton of climbing expeditions with probably a bunch of dudes. What was it like climbing with all women? It was so freeing. And I realized that some of that not feeling free is on me from other expeditions. Totally, totally recognize that I put my guard up very easily. But we all commented on how we didn't feel the need to like strive. Like we're just going to go out today. This is what the plan is. We're going to love and support each other. And we're all committed to doing our best. You know, mountain climbing has attracted a lot of people and it's only growing. Um, And and I have mixed feelings about it. Me too. Okay, because it's expensive and it's not accessible to everybody. And Mm -hmm. like people die and it just feels like this big ego thing. But at the same time, it's beautiful. And like, I mean, that's what we were made to do as humans. Like climb the tallest mountains, like test our limits. Achieve the most, yeah. How do you grapple if you have these mixed feelings too? Um... You know, how do you deal with them? Yeah, I see the same thing happening in climbing big mountains. Um, and I was talking to someone recently in Nepal about this, that it, it used to be we'd go to Nepal and we'd climb a mountain. And now people want to climb 10 of them or all 14 of the 8,000 meter peaks in the world. And for me, that's not my style of climbing. It's great. I mean, it's a huge, huge 
athletic achievement. I cannot imagine climbing 14, 8,000 meter peaks in a lifetime, let alone less than a year. And I think if people want to do that and they want to do it safely and honestly, great. But climbing to me is so much more about having a relationship with the mountain and the people around me and using that climb to learn more about myself. And so for me, I'm fine with just just one mountain at a time. Well, it's really cool. And it's just, I mean, you're in this percent that's very small of people who've done what you've done. And, you know, I'm sure you've inspired people that you don't even know about and will to do different things. Could you distill down the biggest lessons the mountains have taught you? Yeah. For me, the biggest thing is to not let other people define what I'm capable of. I think I got very caught up in that early on when people doubted what I should or shouldn't be doing as a new climber or as a woman. And I let that get to me for a while. And it wasn't until after cancer and I realized that like, this is my life. I get to make the choices and I'm going to decide what I'm capable of. And it might not always be pretty. I'm probably going to screw it up, (laughs) but I'm not going to look back and regret anything. Over the years, Lisa's adventures have taught her to lean into a more wild life and to live without regrets. Although her climbing journey has changed a lot since she summited her first mountain over a decade ago, one thing has remained the same. Lisa craves adventure. She's still climbing mountains, but instead of pushing herself to reach the world's most notable peaks, Lisa is more focused on helping others experience the magic of alpine air. Lisa Thompson, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. I loved connecting with you and your story is just incredible. Lisa has written about her mountaineering adventures and her journey with cancer in her book, Finding Elevation. It just came out on January 10th. I read it and I highly recommend that you read it too, especially if you're into mountaineering and into pushing your limits. If you want to learn more about Lisa, you can go to her website, lisaclimbs.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Lisa Climbs. That's L-I-S-A-C-L-I-M-B-S. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, produced by Annie Fassler, Sylvia Thomas, and Sam Pierce-Nitzberg of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Jenny Barber. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.